You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. We at TNL are excited to announce our first young clergy meetup. If you're in North America, we'll be meeting up at the USA-Canada Theology Conference September 28th and 29th. If you're a Nazarene pastor in your 20s or 30s, or you just like hanging out with young pastors, we'd love to have you. And if you haven't made plans to come to the conference, please do. We need your voice. For more details or to register for the main conference itself, visit the events page of our website at thisnazlife.com. Also, if you're not in the U.S., why not host a meetup for young clergy where you are? We'd love to put it on our website, too. Today on the podcast is our first role model episode with Dr. Brent Peterson. Dr. Peterson is a professor of theology at Northwest Nazarene University. We recorded this episode a while back, but the book that he is working on is even more urgent in light of recent events. Thanks for tuning in. Peterson. He's uh, author of two books, including Postmodern and Wesleyan, and Created to Worship. We're here to talk about his work in the Church of Nazarene. Hi, Brent. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Can you just start off by telling us your story and how you got involved with the Nazarene Church to begin with? Yeah. So uh, both sets of my parents uh, were Nazarene. I think on my dad's side, to go back five generations um, to Midwest, Minneapolis, um, and my mom's side as well has a long history, and uh, both my parents, uh, grandparents, uh, deeply involved in the church. Not many clergy, uh, but a lot of opinionated laity, <laughs> and they were eager to share those opinions. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I was in the church more than the pastor was growing up. We, and it's weird because like I, and this is my parents' parenting style. Um, I never resented it, regretted it. We had great churches. I had great pastors. They had issues, um, but the Church of the Nazarene has been nothing but great to me. Um, we ended up going to Northwest Nazarene, great experience, um, met my now wife there, went to Nazarene Seminary, uh, have been given places of leadership and denomination through NYI and other areas. And so the church has invested a lot in me, and so I'm extremely grateful for that. And so in light of that, I feel like there's a lot that I owe back to the denomination, um, and that's... Um, so it's, it's a great love affair and I really enjoyed the church. Um, certainly areas of great things and hard things, Mm -hmm. but I really do um, appreciate the denomination, which has invested a great deal. And I'm really grateful for how the gospel was given to me and the opportunity now to keep living into that formation. Hmm. That's awesome. Well, I know you've written a couple of books. Can you tell us about what you're working on right now? Yeah, so I'm I'm really privileged uh, to have a fabulous colleague at Northwest Nazarene, uh, Diane LeClaire. Uh, she and I are currently working on a book, and it's been kind of germinating for three or four years, to be honest. Um, our tentative title is called The Backside of the Cross. And our basic premise is, um, well, in most churches, most notions of the atonement and forgiveness, the basic idea is that, like, you know, Britt, you're a sinner, and so Jesus has come to forgive you and you were naughty and bad and you stole things and you lied to me, right? And we're going to come and you feel guilt about those things, and rightfully so, because you've done things that are bad, um, that Christ has offered you forgiveness and redemption. And that is all good. Mm-hmm. The problem, though, is that we've neglected to pay attention to those 
who've been sinned against. Mm. So one of the great stories uh, we think about is Bathsheba, right? So Bathsheba, victim in the story, uh, when kings should be off at war, David was at home. And we have the story, the wife um, is brought to the, the palace, uh, pregnancy, Uriah is killed, uh, Bathsheba total victim. And so the first problem is that God allows her husband to be killed, um, let alone the whole notion, by the way, that child ended up dying. Um, and then the notion is that God wants to forgive David. Well, that's awesome for David, but like, does God care about Bathsheba at all? Mm. In the church, we've just been focused on making sure David gets off the hook, which ironically, the people in power are definitely the ones who've been the student and the sinning, and the victims of sin are often ignored. And so the book is really going to be, again, not to undermine the way in which sinners and all of us are sinners still need forgiveness. So that's still there. But for many people, um, part of their disease and struggle is they've not been given healing for the ways they've been sinned against. Mm. So how we recover a robust place of lament in the church, the ways in which, um, in some regard, people demand for God to account as the lament psalms do. God, where were you, right, when these things have happened? Um, Again, to really think about how healing has to, has to happen. And one of the main concepts we're working with is the notion, it's an Asian concept of called Han. Mm. And Han is the way in which if I'm sinned against and that isn't like healed, I'm probably going to hurt and sin against others. Mm. And so, again, we just deal with the way people say, well, look, I'm sorry you were hurt. That's really sad. But let's just deal with the fact that you hurt someone else. And that's just naive. And it's not holistic um, view of salvation. And so a more robust notion of sin or homardiology is that we think about the ways in which often because I've been sinned against, it's helping to exacerbate the ways in which I hurt others. Mm -hmm. And so until we deal with the cancer of the pain in my own life, um, I'm just going to probably keep hurting others in a lot of ways. So the whole book is thinking about um, the backside of the cross, the ways in which people who've been victims of sin and then leaning into what Christ does on the cross is enter into in solidarity as Christ chooses to become victim. That's a really important concept. He um, begins to have a fellowship and communion with those who've been also victimized. And uh, Jürgen Moltmann m- mentions that God becomes the God of those who've been abandoned and forsaken by God. Mm-hmm. And God enters into that own God forsakenness. And so um, we really think it will be helpful in the churches to think about in our preaching and teaching and singing how we can also include conversations about how is there space for the victims of sin um, to be able to speak those things out, mm-hmm. to name those things, um, and thinking about toxic shame and guilt, as well as thinking about how they can find healing from Christ and God who allowed these evil events to occur. It's fascinating. Yeah. What, what originally inspired you to dig into that topic? I had a doctoral seminar uh, on healing and reconciliation, and and we kind of came across this came across this book called The Other Side of Sin, and uh, edited book Walter Brueggemann has this fascinating chapter on the Jews and the Exodus, and how often you know and and, and then the, the wisdom literature. So you have Psalms and Proverbs, and there it says basically if you do good and you're righteous, good things will come to you. And that's mostly true, right? But then Job comes along, and all of a sudden we have this notion in which um, Job has done nothing sinful, and yet hard things come to him to really kind of offer a, a strong blow to the absolutes of Psalms and Proverbs, mm-hmm. right? So Brueggemann then looks at that and says, you know, in the Exodus narrative, you have the sinner, Pharaoh, 
the righteous one, God, and the third party is the victim, which are the Hebrews. In, in some regard, you paid no attention to the Hebrews' sinfulness in that narrative. They're simply a victims of slavery, right? Now, we know later on they're going to be sinners, trust me. we got the prophets coming. But in that narrative, you have this third party of the sinned against, and how does God bring salvation to them? So that book really began me, and then thinking about my own story, living in the church, really thinking about, um, you know, um, Bathsheba, thinking about uh, Abel, all these people for whom God allowed them to be hurt and then forgave their abuser. Mm-hmm. And like, so now what, right? So what do you offer? And we're not, I'm not saying I'm condemning God for, giving, for, for forgiving David, but I want to say, how does Bathsheba come to God ever as someone who's going to be helpful to her, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that book, and then um, coming to NNU, um, my colleague Diane LeClaire had a lot of these thoughts in some ways um, we read this book together and articulated and crystallized for her a lot of ways in which she dealt a lot with theology of abuse and the way in which the church has not always done a great job in providing healthy avenues and ways to deal with victims of abuse in the church. Um, obviously, culturally, we're getting better, but the church can do a better job. So how can we provide places for healing um, and reconciliation by bringing to light things down in the darkness when a lot of the time, of course, our recompense has been to those who've been hurt we allow them to sit in their, ga- their guilt and shame. And so they can never find freedom um, and really have a hard time really finding a God who, who can love them, who's allowed these things to happen. Are there practical things that you lay out in the book that a church can do to foster those? Uh, well, the book is still being written. Right. Um, but I, I, one of the things we do want to help and, and offer some practical approaches to think about, um, the largest category of songs in the Psalter are laments. Mm. When was the last time in your church you were allowed to say, God, you have failed us. God, you have abandoned us. I mean, when do we sing that song, right? Right. Uh, like it's illegal worship, but it's all over the Psalms. Mm. And laments are not pious whining. Mm. Laments are actually grounded in trust, but come to God with a complaint to say, God, you need to be better. Yeah. Right? And so within that, how can, how can we have... Um, one of the, the practical things, we just had Mother's Day a mm. few bit ago, and I actually had the privilege to preach and lead in that prayer. Um, Mother's Day, as we all know, is hard, right? We celebrate moms, great, happy, awesome, okay? Um, what about those who are single and want to be mom? Those who've lost kids in the womb? Those whose relationship with parents and kids are awful, right? There's a lot of pain in that day. And oftentimes the church kind of just glazes over that. And mothers, right? And it's not an either-or thing. But so um, how can we have in, in our worship time a real prayer of lament mm. for those who've been hurt and wounded. And Mother's Day is the worst day of the year for, for lots of reasons, right? And it are just mixed emotions. So finding practical ways for pastors, think about having prayers during your service and singing in space for victims of sin. Thinking about having um, messages and sermons and space in our worship conversation about what do I do when I've been hurt and feel like God has failed me. Mm. Um, and again, I think the Psalms are this great resource that we're just not tapping into. In some regard, if we can't offer God our laments, our praise is always a bit hollow. And so I think, again, and then laments are going to ground in hope and trusting in God, but there's an authenticity to our worship that we're missing out on. And a large number of people for whom are often the quiet victims who I think can experience deeper levels of sanctification through this idea. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. 
Well, I want to I want to change topics a little bit because I know that you've written a lot of um, resolutions, and yeah. I was wondering if we could just talk about maybe some of those resolutions or why you write them. So yeah, I I um, I love our assembly. I, I love the ability to come together. It's a big you know uh, family gathering. Um, and the manual is really important for us as a denomination. It provides, I think, and, and I view the manual, and this is going to sound awkward, and there are important places for uh, poly to be there. You've got to give, give rules. There has to be organization. You have to know what you're doing. God is not a God of chaos. Um, but as a theologian and pastor, um, I think the manual is a great place to have conversations. So whether I was a pastor or as a professor now, um, and I think the manual statements um, are best used as poetry, right? The articles of faith. I mean, the creeds are, first of all, poems, right? Mm. They're not these um, doctrinal statements that are simply propositional. They invite us into an encounter with God. So, um, so some of the manual statements, um, we think God helps us. Um, we think there are a lot of human stuff in there and contextually. Um, some human language is open to, can we say it better? And again, I also don't think there's any magic in changing the articles of faith. Often the articles of faith, to be honest, feel like they're more reacting to what's already the case. But so the area of my expertise is mostly in the sacraments. Mm. And so I've thought about helping us in our language um, kind of celebrate a robust sacramentality that I think um, is really evident now in our Nazarene practice. I mean, the reality is that the Lord's Supper is being celebrated now more than it's ever been in our history. And so I want to celebrate that by having a more um, uh, statements that are more connected to the Wesleys. And that's robust practice with a strong theology of how we can affirm this dynamic encounter with God. So most of my resolutions have been about there, but there are other areas as a theologian. Um, I think we can make it a little better. Um, because I think, again, the articles of faith are not magic, but they do help us to think into a narrative and a gospel. And I think that they're a great foundation. And we don't just change them to change them, but are there ways in which um, our human words can better lean into um, the mystery and beauty of what God is doing to redeem all things? So if there was, um, say, a young pastor in the denomination that was lamenting a certain bit of the manual, yeah. how would you advise them to go about um, on that. Yeah. First of all, I'd have conversations. I, I, in some regard, and I don't want to short circuit the whole notion of uh, resolution, you know, that, that's a, that's an important avenue that you feel like there's a place in this conversation. But to be honest, more than just simply like changing an article of faith, I think having conversations is key. I think as a denomination in our culture, uh, we need to talk through areas where we agree and talk through places where we're nuanced and where there's difference. And I'm just committed to the fact that, um, uh, the God who is faithful and loving also created church with great diversity. Mm. And I think instead of that diversity being a weakness, it's a great strength. And so I think I've experienced, and I've had a lot of years in ministry, a lot of years in Kansas City, to be honest, among a lot of our denominational leaders who love God and who are constantly thinking about what God is doing in our midst around the world. And so with that, I think actually... Um, as a denomination, um, I've been in many places where we've been free to have conversations. And I think that you would have conversations with fellow pastors, uh, with DSs, other friends, um, to think through um, how we articulate things. And what does this mean? A lot of times there's language that's loaded. And obviously most of our manuals in English, which are a whole other conversation about globalization. Right. And what, those, what it means in German, what it means in you know, Portuguese. Um, but I think having conversations is really key. I, I think the manual is a, is a living document um, 
but it's life-giving and not simply this, this kind of like ceiling uh, of being in jail. Um, and I think the manual, and again, I, I think our articles of faith, it's really hard for them to change. That's a good thing. There's a lot of core things there, to be honest, aligns with lots of areas. But I also think, um, as a theologian, there are ways in which I think we can better lean into what God is doing in the world. So to young pastors, I would say, let's keep talking. Um, you know, there's obviously certain times and places. I'm not going to have this conversation necessarily in the pulpit. Um, but, boy, in my church, we're going to think through atonement theories. We're going to think through the sacraments. We're going to think through about divine healing, the importance of Scripture. And so I think in your churches, among friends, but the thing that's really important is that we never get into a culture of fear. Mm. We never have a culture where we're afraid to, to listen and engage each other. Um, that's really important. That's awesome. Um, what gives you hope for the future of the church in Nazarene? Well, um, uh, first of all, God. Um, I, I really, again, as one who, and look, recognize that uh, God is the Lord of the church and the church universal is going forward. The kingdom of God is going to come. And that's the confidence in which I have that I think God has graciously allowed us to exist. Let me also say in the backside, um, if we become disobedient and God says, well, you had a good run, Nazarenes, but it's time to move on, um, I'll be sad. But I also know the kingdom of God is way bigger than our denomination. That being said, I have great hope for our denomination. I think um, there are a lot of uh, old and middle-aged and young persons in the church for whom are asking and engaging in ministry, encountering persons around the world. Um, one small slice of my friends, Jay and Tiana Sunberg, are doing incredible with refugees. I know friends who are doing ministry in inner cities around the world. Um, great pastors and country churches, whom sometimes feel like they're doing nothing, are doing phenomenal work. Um, so to be honest, the more I'm with pastors, I'm really encouraged. And to be honest... Um, being a professor now, after being a pastor for 12 years, being a professor now for 10 years, um, my heroes are local church pastors. Mm. Um, and again, oftentimes we're good to celebrate the big pastor, the big church. Um, but And there's great people too. But often it's that pastor of the church of 30 in rural Idaho who is doing everything he or she can um, to really live into the gospel and it's how they're creatively reaching their community. So um, God is the hope of the church, universal. And I think God is doing great things in our denomination. And the key is for us to have the courage to lean, keep leaning into where God is moving us. So awesome. Well, I really appreciate you joining me today. Hopefully I can have you back again. Sounds good. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> sure. <laughs> as someone who's chronologically not as gifted as myself... <laughs> What gives you uh, hope about the church? Um, I think people that believe in young pastors like me, people okay. that look in the eyes of their students and see the future. Okay. Um, I think that's what gives me hope, that I will have a voice, that okay. people like me will have a voice because other people will believe in us and do believe in us. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate your work with young pastors and with students and with budding theologians yeah. um, to help us figure out where we're going and what we're doing. Okay, and one question though. Now I'm taking up this podcast. This is Brent Peters on this podcast. Thanks for joining me today. <laughs> so, what do you think are the biggest challenges we face? And I'm not sure necessarily I want to do old and young. Mm. It's easy to kind of do that stereotype. Right. But what is the denomination? What are challenges we face 
that you think we, we have to address moving forward? And someone from your perspective who's a little bit on the younger side. Sure. Not super young. You're getting old eventually. Yeah. Um, but uh, what, what do you think some areas we've got to work on to tell you talking to this old person now across the table? Um, for me, in my context, I would say the biggest challenge that we face is the desire to have conversation, to allow okay. conversation to happen, yeah. to not be afraid of having difficult conversations, mm-hmm. to not be afraid of coming out um, in disagreement and disagreeing Christianly, as John mm-hmm. likes to say. I hope to find a place and cultivate a space where students can ask questions, where I can ask questions, where we can ask questions as a denomination and, and feel safe and loved and mm-hmm. um, accepted. So one of the things that you brought up uh, is uh, I think we've confused unity and uniformity. Mm. And I think the church in its four notions of one holy Catholic and apostolic church is unity and uniformity is not in there. I think like the second Corinthians or first Corinthians, somewhere in the Bible, Paul talks about the church as a body, right? Right. And we're all not a big toe, we're an armpit, right? We're a liver, whatever, right? Right. It's that diversity is a strength, but I do think it's interesting when fear is a problem. So, one more question for you. So, like, what do I, as an old person, need to know and hear about folks who are either young pastors or coming to be pastors? What do I need to hear to help? Um, what do I need to hear? Uh, like from young people? Yeah. yeah but what's something that you think is not being heard that needs to be heard? That we young people want to contribute. That okay. we are here. That we are doing ministry that is vital to the work of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've produced some statistics and charts in the past as a denomination that have focused on senior pastors. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of um, people my age um, aren't necessarily there yet. We're right. doing other things. We're associates, college pastors like myself. Yeah. And um, to recognize, spend time recognizing and affirming the work of young pastors in our church. Um, a friend of mine who has now left the denomination at the moment, mm-hmm. um, said that she didn't really feel like her work was affirmed until mm-hmm. after she was gone. She was working in another church. Mm-hmm. Um, and that pains me to, to hear that, to know that that's true. Um, so I think if we as a denomination, not just old people, but all of us mm-hmm. can spend more time asking questions to young people and affirming the work and the voice of young people, mm-hmm. um, we'll get further and we'll keep more of us around if we're in the conversation and making space at the table, I think is the most important mm-hmm. piece. That's great. Well, thanks. Well, thank you. Thanks for taking over my podcast. That's what I do. (laughs) 